10. Amen. So the chapter of the confession we'll be considering this morning will be found uh, in the Trinity Hymnal on page 676. So starts there. Uh, Pastor Derek had covered a few months ago uh, the first paragraph in this chapter, which sort of just began to lay the groundwork for the, the, the very notion of justification, how we are justified in God's sight. So today we'll be picking up in the second paragraph, uh, hopefully uh, by God's grace and my you know, uh, ability, we will be able to get through paragraphs two through six today. I'm beginning with paragraph two. Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So we notice here that this, this process of realizing justification uh, first comes in the ascent of belief and acknowledging Christ as the one who accomplishes that justification. Of course, we are not having faith in our faith. We are having faith in the object of our faith, who has himself provided that justification for us. So it's helpful to note that uh, this is an, an objective righteousness given by a representative, representative figure. In fact, we see this has been the case since the Garden of Eden. We have Adam as a mediator, as someone who is a, a federal head, a representative um, of humanity to God. And so this, this type has been with us since then. And so in this process, uh, it's, it's acknowledging that faith seizes upon Christ in order to receive his merits on our behalf. So, so James Pettigrew Boyce makes the point that because of this, it's not, it's not as if righteousness is ever personally our own. It's granted to us. So likewise, with, with Christ accomplishing this righteousness, uh, when, we, when we have faith, faith is simply that action which then says to, to make it our own. Uh, I think of the time when uh, John Piper had been at a conference, uh, Ligonier Conference with R.C. Sproul, and they were considering these truths, justification by faith alone, chief among them. And when Piper had gotten up, he had realized that Sproul had made mention of, of sort of justification being this chair. You know, Christ accomplishes his work on our behalf, and, and so it's there for us. And then Piper turned to him and said, you, know, you have to remind yourself we have to sit in the chair. We have to then actively recognize it's not, it's not just realizing that that's the case, but then claiming and saying that I, I desire his robes righteous for myself. And, and that is in and of itself an action. You know, the, the nature of the order of, of salvation, right? Predestination, effectual calling. Um, and, and how individuals are then able to see they need to receive and rest in Christ. So it's sort of this process of what the Puritans would call, you know, closing with Christ. You would have this decisive moment where you meet with him and recognize your need of him. And so again, when we're talking about justification by itself, it's achieved by him alone, but that leads to a change in identity, right? Uh, individual Christians uh, can recognize that our, that our righteousness is sure, but there's been a change in status and a change in affection. That's resulted from that. So we see, of course, in our confession that a lot of these chapters sort of run together. And the next one, chapter 12, is on adoption, which I think very helpfully follows up from where this chapter leaves us. 
Because I think what we can say is that justification secures one's status as a child of God through faith. In contrast, sanctification, or in addition to, sanctification is the active exercise of the privileges of our adoption. So sanctification is that reality in which we recognize that we, we have been justified. We have been saved. So as, so as far as it concerns uh, our, our standing before God, we are within his household now. But we now have to act like it. But again, that, that is separate from justification but comes in light of it. So of course we recognize that salvation isn't passive. Justification does something to us. So Without, without confusing these aspects of what happens in light of one's salvation in Christian life, we have to see that the collection of these things going together. We've used the terminology of the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8 to this effect. Uh, that, that they're all necessarily linked, and they all follow together. And they're all distinguishable. But as, as some have said before, you know, uh, salvation in Christ is sort of a, a bundled deal. It's a bundled package. It all comes together. Uh, but, but knowing sort of the sequence of events is helpful for knowing uh, how, how we locate ourselves and our own responsibility in this regard. Because I think one sort of negative example we can consider uh, that, that has historical precedent uh, has been called, uh, whether or not this is exactly how those who believed it uh, refer to it as, but has been called neonomianism. So the Puritan theologian Richard Baxter was known for proposing a really problematic understanding of the doctrine of salvation. It's got this quote where he says, you know, covenant, keep, covenant making brings you to Christ. That reality of, of having faith in sort of brings you and in a sense justifies you. But covenant keeping keeps you and sustains you in that. And it was sort of this, this confusion of he wanted to be able to see how works and faith went together. And a lot of this has to do with the tension of the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And, and, and a way to, re, you know, to, to remedy that tension is to recognize that in, in, in acknowledging our justification in Christ, we are, we are recognizing that we have been made new. We have, we have been given a new standing in his sight. And so that necessarily would then lead to demonstrable fruits Evidences of godliness in one's life. Again, that's not the source of one's justification. It's simply recognizing that uh, th- th- those, those persons um, still have that objective assurance in Christ, but that in, in light of who they are now, have to uh, pursue in faith all of, all of those good gifts and, and all of those fruits of the Spirit. So one is made a member of the New Covenant community by means of regeneration. I think the theologian Benjamin Keach is helpful on this point. He, he sort of has this notion of a ladder, right, where he says, you know, belief is sort of getting on the first rung of that ladder. But then one must ascend, and one must more fully assume them to themselves a Christian life and a Christian identity. And then eventually, like, as, as a result of progressing then in one's sanctification, one goes higher and higher until eventually that sanctification is perfected in glorification. So again, all of those steps are different, but justification uh, makes that possible. But again, it is only in seizing upon that in faith that we, that we then recognize that for ourselves in a way that is effective and actual. So the work of God begins in us necessarily, uh, finds indication in seeking to please him. Like how the theologian John Cotton referred to this, he said it was that the Holy Spirit makes the New Testament a lively letter. Right? So what, what, a child of God, one who's been justified, then wants to seek to do all those things that Christ commands. Again, in light of that change in identity. 
So next, looking at paragraph three, unless there are any initial questions raised from our exploration of paragraph two. Okay, so paragraph three. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did, by the sacrifice of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. Uh, if you have a, a copy of God's Word with you, uh, one of the reference texts here is Hebrews 10, 14. So I turn there, Hebrews 10. And I'll begin reading uh, in verse 11. So verses 11 through 14 in Hebrews chapter 10. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So even partially here we're seeing that recognition of there's, there's what justification does in applying that righteousness. Um, and then how, how those who are already justified then bear forth the reality of, of that in their sanctification. And so we, we see you know, this, this notice here of active and passive obedience in Christ and this one singular work. right? So we, it's not that these are apart from each other. This idea of going willingly and submitting to the will of the Father by dying on the cross and then likewise filling up, storing up righteousness according to the law by being fully and perfectly obedient to it. I think Jim Renahan makes the point that like, it's, like, like Christ's garment, it is seamless. It is all necessary. Each aspect is not just that. He is sort of an exemplary keeper of the law and is therefore you know, to be a standard to humanity, someone that we should all emulate, or that he just was exceptionally godly and died uh, you know, a, a, a death on the cross. But they both go together to see how he both satisfied the law and satisfied our breaking of it. Satisfied God's wrath against us that was, that was fully justified. So we notice here the, the interplay of expiation and propitiation, right? He did fully discharge that debt and did, did, did so for the justified. Yet he underwent that in our stead so he, he fully satisfied God's wrath for us. And so he still stands as righteous before the Father forever. So in, in, in the range of this justification, it's not simply that we consider sort of the, the slate being wiped clean in the hopes that we wouldn't try to punt it again, but that we have someone who will never violate the law, who now stands in the presence of the Father for us, so that no kind of infraction on our, our part, no kind of uh, failure on our part to keep the law would, would ever bring a charge against us. He, he stands between us and, and, and the Father in the sense of, not that the Father is vindictive, but according to his own perfect holiness, could not countenance such unholiness and sinfulness that's in us naturally. Because of Christ, we don't have to worry for that. We have no fear for our appeal. So we, we, we recognize in light of this, this paragraph that Christ redeemed his people on the cross. 
So he, he saw it right as, yet in as much as he was given by the Father for them, there's a specificity to the people that is being saved by merit of Christ's work. I think, I think uh, Bruce Demarest is helpful where he notes that the elect is never an empty class in Scripture. And what he's saying there is that it's never presumed that it's not like a particular people that Christ has in mind that he's coming to save. When always it's referred to, it's always specified, right? We, we see it referred to uh, in the sense of uh, earthly ethnic Israel at times. But then more fully as the, the church comes into play, the, the, the true spiritual Israel in the new covenant community. But likewise, it was always the case. So it's not, again, an act of disinterested benevolence. It's not just Christ representing you know, consummate love for God and staying before humanity, again, as someone for us to emulate. But he's fulfilling what the law and the prophets have always sought be done, right? That the messianic figure would come and write these things for us, for God's people. So right, wrath is both deserved and earned. Yet Christ banishes the guilt of our human sin before the face of God. So we notice, of course, that it has to therefore be holy of grace. So it couldn't just be a matter of God seeing something in us that was favorable. I think this is sort of, in its own way, sort of a critique of the more Arminian understanding of foreknowledge. Not just that God is looking down the corridors of time and seeing people who decide to choose him and love him, but that before that is even a possibility from eternity past to create that those people would be saved. Again, not for any merit in us, but does it, again, out of his own delight. See, the, the, the wondrous truth of, of Christ's definite atonement, this reality of justification being only a free grace, that God glorifies himself this way, is that God does not need us. He wants us for his own. He desires it to, to, to save his people. So it's, it's one thing to simply say that, that God sort of just does this uh, to, to, to glorify himself and, and, and leave it at that without acknowledging the deeper reality. I think that's infinitely glorious is that God, God does it out of love for us. And again, purely for its own sake. Uh, we, we see, you know, the, the parable of, of Christ in the Gospel of Luke of the, the widow's might, the widow's searching for this lost coin. And the point is, when you think about it, in terms of the valuation of that coin, uh, the coin itself was not really worth all that much. It would have been maybe a day's wages in reality, but she did everything she could, was flipping up her house left and right to find this coin. And the application of that for us is that, that, that God, it's not that God needs humanity, he needs to redeem humanity, he just wants to. It's what, it's what, it's what delights him and glorifies him to do that for us, for, for, for our good. So, in union with Christ, we are brought into experiencing his joy in the Father. We are, we are translated into this kingdom of righteousness, this kingdom of light. And so, we notice, of course, again, that, that that is secure because Christ is the one that has done it. It's not because he's enabled us, contrary to someone like Baxter, he's enabled us, you know, to have this greater righteousness, but instead, like, he is himself our righteousness. And so, we have that assurance. So also noticing at the end here, right, the covenant of redemption was entered into out of delight, out of God's delight, to save his elect. Redemption's very design intends to bring humanity into a greater status than they possessed in creation. He wants to see us in union with Christ and brought closer to him than ever before.
So are there any questions on, on paragraph three we could consider briefly? Paragraph three. Okay. So now looking at paragraph four. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. So this is sort of contesting the notion of what will be called eternal justification, that the elect have always sort of been saved in real space-time. Instead, it was saying that was planned, that was foreordained, but then would be realized across the, the fabric of redemptive history. So God sort of plans this out. The, the Father and the Son make the pactum salutis. They, they, they come together to, to, to uh, design this process of how humanity would be saved and how they only could be saved according to the work of the Son. Uh, but that would be one that would take place. So in reality, we see the necessity then of God's story of redemption. The redemptive history was God's plan from eternity past. This would all take place. Sort of apply uh, Calvin's notion of creation as a theater for God's glory. Like in light of how this plays out, like we see built, built upon the preceding paragraph, God is glorifying himself in this way. He desires, I, I will create this world and I will, I will bring all these things to pass because it is my desire and my decretive will to do so. So eternal life was secured through Christ's atonement and assured through his resurrection. So we, see, we note here that he says that he would rise again. So it doesn't just stop with the fact, okay, wrath has been satisfied. Notice that it's not just that the law has been perfectly kept and fulfilled as some sort of uh, bare-bones sacrifice by itself, but that this, this reality of resurrection was right, this greater assumption of what would come, what really was the, the design of what humanity would be restored to and renovated according to. So right, life in God, rather than just, just acceptance before him, was the idea here. It was this, it was this, this principle that, in, in light of Christ rising again for us, resurrection life would be seen as his plan for us all along. All of that invites and all of that assumes that we see in glorification. So regarding the Spirit's work, though, it's helpful to also note initially here that simply affirming the reality of justification does not make one justified. So simply realizing the truthfulness of it, seeing the logic of redemption fit together and work and, and, and ascending to that, is not in of itself effective. It has to be the work of regeneration that the Spirit then applies to us, that then makes that real, that then, that they, that they, that then fully grants that status of one justified. So I think it's helpful to see this here as that just as he was the, the agent of the first creation, so is the spirit the agent of the new creation. He was the one that would be ordained, right? Like we, we see this in, in Genesis, right? That he was hovering over the waters. But that in reality, with, with regeneration, he is the one that applies that work as we are seeking to become all of those that God intends for us to be in light of his salvation in Christ. So acknowledge that the gospel wasn't a plan B. We're seeing that salvation transfers us. There's, there's an actual shift because when, when this work of salvation is applied, 
uh, we recognize that this, this entails all the realities um, of Christian identity. And it was striking for me just in terms of trying to consider how simply understand the logic of Scripture and, and having sound doctrine is, is, isn't justifying in and of itself, apart from the spirit making that true to oneself. Um, in, my, in my own studies, uh, there are actually a lot of, of secular, unbelieving scholars of the Puritans. And it's striking for some of us, but especially in the United States, there were um, men uh, at Ivy League universities who were studying the Puritans and remained atheists their whole lives. Despite being some of the best scholars on these figures, if you, if you read them, you think that they were giving a glowing recommendation of their thought because they were just trying to be good scholars. But what's amazing to me is that despite all of that and reading some of the you know, most heartrending appeals for the gospel and a, and a call to repentance, it just simply had no effect on them. Right. So simply having that sound theology does nothing. So again, thus the necessity of, of the Spirit's work in us because we have to acknowledge, yes, Christ did, did seek to, to justify all the elect and, and, and all, all these things, but I think it brings home the point that this is, this is in and of itself a miraculous work of God right. to bring a sinner to himself that he still has to do. And he has to do in his own good pleasure, in his own good timing, not on the sort of timetable that we might expect. So then are there any questions about paragraph four that have come up so far? We can also have some time for some questions here at the end as well, just maybe on the, the you know, chapter as a whole, if you want to you know, bash on Derek for not getting something last time, or bash on me, it's up to you. Um, okay, very good then. Uh, we'll go ahead and look at paragraph 5 in that case. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification... Yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they have not usually the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So in terms of some context, thinking, right, this was written in the 17th century. There were things going on then that probably, and I will acknowledge, are still going on in some form now, but they were trying to confront. So, so scholars who have studied this, such as you know, Dr. Renahan I and mean, others, will note that they were dealing with the rampancy of antinomianism. So like I, I was referring to somewhat briefly earlier, this relationship between the covenant of works and covenant of grace, this, this shows up in New England, among the New England Puritans, and of course it also shows up uh, back in England proper herself. But those who simply say, well, if... if we've been fully justified and Christ has kept the law, then there's no sense in which we, we still keep it. And there's also no sense in which like, we are um, being watchful or that our, our sins, more specifically to this paragraph, our sins are imputing anything extra or that we need to worry about that. Because right? Christ has already fulfilled all of that, so in a sense, you know, sin that grace may abound is kind of the logic that they're going for here. Again, they're, they're marketing it as a fulfillment of the gospel of Christ. So I think it's helpful to sort of orient, orient us on what the confession is getting at. One of the reference texts here, uh, Psalm 89. If you go there with me, uh, Psalm 89. And it's specifically uh, in verses 31 through 33 that the confession has designated, but I, I think I'll also indulge myself and read into verse 34. So uh, Psalm 89, uh, verses 31 through 34. If they break my statutes... And keep not my commandments, 
Then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. So I think we have a sense of, of, of negative and positive application here, right? A, a negative application, right, is to contest against any notion that one can know Christ as Savior not fully realize him as Lord in their lives. You, you, if you are a Christian, if you have been saved, then that means that you would hate the things that God hates. You would hate what Christ came to die for. You would not want to wound him any further in that sense. You would, you would seek to banish such things from your life. So the negative sense, then, is not to make too much of your justification um, at the expense of your sanctification and at the expense of what Christ has done for you. We have to actively understand like these acts of sin and, and, and to consider uh, what Christ already had died for and, and, and is, in a sense, still applying to us right by his righteousness, but that we would therefore not seek um, to do such things because we have to understand the sinfulness of sin, first and foremost. As, as, to why God's hate, as to why God hates it, and as to why we must hate it as well. So Christians sense and are saddened by God's displeasure. So it's, it's, it's helpful to know, right, in, in, in one sense, that like Christ is not going to abandon us when we uh, stumble, when we fall, but as we try to recognize in our study of the book of Hebrews on Sunday mornings, that we would not take such salvation lightly. There would be such a trembling that we have received this gift, that we have received Christ's righteousness on our behalf, and then we would treat it as a, as, as a plaything. We would trample upon it. So that the extreme of this, it would be someone who is simply saying, like, I, I want to sin because I want to see God save me in like a, ma- a magnificent way, right? Like, I want to have that story. I want to, I want to have the story of redemption so that, you know, God can almost more glorify himself. But he saved you at the time that he did because he knew that was, that was when he needed to be saved, didn't he? He saved us right when, he, when we need to be saved. And he, he does so in a way that um, is infinitely glorifying to himself. Not every, not every conversion story from the eyes of man is going to be spectacular. I think sometimes we, we get this, this sense that, and, I, and I'm certainly not immune to it, that every, every sense in which one is saved uh, has to be the makings of a movie. Uh, but... Right, from God's perspective, like, all, all of the heavenly hosts rejoice when a sinner comes home. Like, the reality that one person is able to turn from sin and turn to Christ fully and, and, and therefore be restored to that delight in God that we were made for and union with Christ that has been, that has been wrought for us, that that might be possible, is of infinite joy to the Father. So we should, we should begin there, but don't, it's not to the identity lightly. Um, so in a positive sense, we can see how, uh, in, in light of, uh, what has happened in just our justification, that Christ stands forever before the Father as our eternal and sure mediator. We've acknowledged that. And so we can, also, we can also entrust ourselves to his sacrifice because no blood will ever else be spilt that was more precious than his. Once and for all achieved is the sense here. Right? So this is, this is one and done. But at the same time, uh, we should acknowledge, like in, in light of how one can get into backslidden states. I just want to apply this here. That the wilderness wanderings of some of the backslidden could last longer than we often have patience for. 
There can be times when someone really gives evidence of being a Christian. And then, notice, and this is why I think people get confused about, understand the limited perspective of the keys of the kingdom, right, the, as, as congregations and as church members. Paul gives us this terminology of, you know, treat him as if he's an unbeliever, because if someone is persisting in sin, then he's acting like one. And if, and if he is acting as one who cannot remain in, in the household of God, can't be among his people, then you don't let him stay among you. You have to remove him. You still don't know what the individual's final fate will be. That's not what God's given over to us. He simply thought that with, with things such as church discipline and others, that we would do our very most in helping those to keep the faith, to encourage them in the community of faith. But nevertheless, there will be some where it will, it will last years, potentially even decades. And so I, I, th- I was thinking in light of this paragraph uh, for anyone here who may be... Uh, and I'm not trying to address anyone who would fall into this category here specifically, but if any of you have wayward children, if any of you uh, have those who maybe professed faith, were baptized, were faithful Christians, and then have just kind of slowly, slowly backed away, if, if not in, in like just living an outright uh, sinful lifestyle, the, the accompanying danger I was thinking of just, is just growing apathetic, right? That Christianity just does not seem to be that much of a big deal. Or that you just don't have the passion for it. That for those persons that maybe in that state that we recognize that God is always ready to continue working in that person. Right? If, if he's begun that work, if we know according to that person's justification that that work has been started, it will be completed. That's right. it, it, it might not be immediately. Uh, we, we, we know, of course, some children who are very young and it seems like that it's almost already done at times, but but that God is carrying forth this work always and always tilling and always cultivating new affections. So if he's done that, something that we can't always fully know and perceive in terms of his own more glorious timing, we would trust that he would complete it. Right? We have to trust that God knows how exactly all of his, his children, his wayward children, should return to him and when. Right? Because it brings glory to himself. It's, it's what he desires for them. Because sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes it's painful to see those who would, who would become wayward. But that nevertheless, it's better that. It's better that they come on the right terms, in the full assurance of the true gospel, than for us to water it down, to make things easier. Because I think what we can call this sometimes is the false assurance of eternal security. So those who would say, well, you know, they walk down the aisle. I've heard this before in my own life. Like, a person is assured of that person's salvation like completely irrespective of how that person is presently living, because they did some particular kind of act, maybe like a revivalistic context. And that, that, that's assuring this person, usually a parent, that their, their child is okay. But we need to remember that the bar is still the same. Christ has still set the standard for what righteousness is, that the wrath still has to be satisfied. But we can trust that if God, if God has indeed done that work, that we'll see it to fruition. One, one story that I think really beautifully illustrates this, one that I heard of, uh, there was a um, situation in a major church here in this city where a spouse, um, the wife, was cheating on her husband and wanted to leave the marriage. She was just done with the marriage and also done with Christianity. She just did not want to be in the church anymore. Uh, they tried to, to, to reason with her, but she just, she just left the husband, left the church, left the faith. So there was a divorce. Years go by, and then this woman just dramatically returns to Christ dramatically, and just sort of just depict just the, the wondrous peculiarity of the body of Christ. 
when this woman was restored, they had some kind of service. I, I think she'd already been baptized, but they had some kind of service bringing her back into fellowship with those who had been there when she had left. And since, since that divorce had happened, the husband had actually remarried to a woman on the worship team in this church. And so you just see this ex-wife who's now, who's come back to Christ, being restored and sort of sung over by uh, the woman that married to her husband. But again, you just see like th- that, according to our perspective, there's, there was a lot of brokenness there. There was a lot of hurt that happened and things that just would not be ideal from our perspective. But that, that, that's how God desired that those things would be and how it would come, how, how it would come to pass. And so in light of that, we just have to entrust ourselves to his plan as being better for us on that account. So any, any questions on, on paragraph five we could address briefly? Okay, very good. So then uh, paragraph six, hopefully be a pretty short treatment here. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. So here we're just seeing the reality of covenant theology come to roost. That God has always planned that the gospel was the only way to salvation and that the Spirit was still working in the Old Testament because he's progressively realizing these things through his covenants. He was bringing these things about in redemptive history. He was bringing about in the promises made to Abraham, the promises made to David. He was going to, to surely bring his people to himself through Christ. And so in light of that, the, we, we see that Christ came into the world as the fulfillment of all things sought and prophesied according to Israel. That, that this, this peculiar, particular people would receive these things that would then go to the whole world. It was always his plan from the beginning that that would be the case. So by means of saving sinners and the gospel promised to the Jews, Christ has now brought it to all of humanity. So it was, it was promised, right, in, in the context of Israel, and then it was brought to light in reality of the new covenant community, the spiritual Israel, the church. And so we see, again, that this was always what God had intended to be the case, right? The gospel wasn't just a backup plan. This was always something that God had ordained would happen for his people. And so we should trust that that was right according to um, all of his wisdom in, in making that the case. So we've got a few more minutes here for any sort of broad questions we have on the nature of justification. Some of you had maybe some, some holdover questions from paragraph one that was covered last time. Maybe we could talk about those as well. But anything about uh, paragraphs two through six specifically that comes to mind for you? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that that is the sense that they're going for there. Um, and again, like, like I tried to emphasize, like seeing them as equally essential um, in that process. Uh, because, yeah, a, a, apart from it being, you know, that the law had to be kept and that Christ's wrath had to be, or sorry, the Father's wrath had to be satisfied, there couldn't be true and perfect justice. So A, Hodge puts it this way, is like either, either, the father had to overlook his law and just say, oh, well, it's no longer just. Whatever, according to myself, oh, it's not really whole anymore. Um, or he had to just no longer be wrathful, like, well, you know, what, I, what I'm justly offended by, I got over it. It's no longer a problem for me. Or the third option was he had to send his perfect son to, to perfectly keep that law and therefore, as a result, perfectly satisfy his wrath. 
So that's the only way God maintains any kind of consistency and integrity. So there have been a lot of, um, you know, dilemmas put forward um, in history of philosophy, so like the Eurythro dilemma. I think it does God, it's something good just because God says it's good, right? We, we prove that God, according to himself, is righteous and good. So, again, for violations of his law, that, that wrath is deserved. And so, again, for, the, for him to maintain integrity in himself, the son had to be sent into the world. Um, if, that ha- if, if that hadn't happened, God would have still been fully just, and, 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 and the wrath would have been fully deserved. Humanity just wouldn't have been saved. Right. And, again, he would have been equally glorified in that. So, again, like I tried to say, praise uh, the Lord that... He, he delighted in us and, and sought to save us. A lot of that, even when he was not obligated to, there's no obligation in him for, him for him to do such a thing, nor for the son to suffer so much um, in coming to the world. But he, he did so anyway, and we can, we can rest in that. Yeah. Yes? Yes, yeah, so they, they, they uh... sorry? Yeah, yeah, and you're right. They have they have uh, yeah James two here uh, seventeen twenty two and twenty six. Um, I mean, part of it is acknowledging like what was what was James contesting against. So you know that uh, you think of rhetoric and how people are trying to get a, a particular audience to recognize something. So you know, Paul's dealing with right often is the Judaizers, people who are coming and saying, no, you just need more law. We need to go back to Torah. We need to go back to keeping the ceremonial law to be saved. Um, he's saying, no, well, that's wrong. And then James is having to come along and tell these people, no, like you can't just sit around and act like nothing's changed in your lives, that nothing's different, that you can indulge the same sins. And, and I think very, very, very strikingly notes, like not even just the obvious ones. It's not like all the uh, insanity Paul has to deal with the Corinthians, uh, but even just um, not being hospitable, not, not, not representing Christian love, even just other Christians. I mean, uh, not, not even considering how that, that's reflected external to the body of Christ. So, with, yeah, with that, um, again, like, it, it is for this recognition, and I, I think that it's sort of the, the inner Pelagian in all of us, like that naturalistic man-made religions delight in being able to say that we can do it by ourselves. So, like, I think that's part of just our, like, and I think even in a testimony to the fact, like, we know there's a law that has to be kept, like, naturally, we know that, and so we need to do that, but we're, we're unable to, we're, or at least we're not able to do it perfectly. Uh, and, and so with renewed affections, we can then seek to keep it. But again, that's not the assurance of our justification. So that's like, in sort of distinguishing components of the order of salvation, you're saying, okay, that's not the source of my justification, but that is why I take up my sanctification. Like, I, I, I need to do that, and, I, and we need to take that seriously. So yeah, I mean, like, you can understand why someone, at least... Early in his life, uh, when he was still maturing theologically, why Martin Luther really questioned why it was in the Bible. Why he really had problems with it. He, he, because for him, in his own psychological state, the threat of God's holiness was so problematic for him. Uh, so, and then the book, book of James meant to come along as, as that, uh, that corrective. Um, but again, it helps us to know, like we distinguish, like what is the order of salvation? What, what's being considered here? It's not justification. Um, it's, it's in reality of uh, recognition of our sanctification. Okay, I'll go ahead and pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for helping us understand all that the gospel in Christ has accomplished. And we are grateful that uh, we can rest assured that, that Christ stands before you, that Christ stands in, in, in your presence, and that because of him, 
uh, we, are, we are never uh, fearful about our appeal to the throne. We know that he stands for us as a mediator. Even when, when we are faithless, you are faithful. And it's because of the Son that we can be assured of that. So we pray all these things in his name. Amen.